0: The bedrock and surface deposits of Pennsylvania span over a billion years of geologic time. Pennsylvania literally rocks. Welcome to the PCPG podcast series. The Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists invites you to join us on a journey to explore the geology of the Keystone State and to meet the people who study it and work with it in their everyday lives. Welcome to the PCPG Podcast, a poorly sorted but well-rounded series. I'm your host, Russ Losko. The Earth is not silent. People talk about the silence and tranquility of nature, but silence really does not exist on this planet. The Earth is a dynamic planet, a planet of movement, a planet of constant sound. The Earth is a storyteller if you will just take the time to listen to her. As an undergrad, my major was archaeology. We were trained to always look down when walking across a field. That way, you're best prepared to spot artifacts. This is a habit that over four decades later, I find impossible to break. I must say, it does make for some interesting finds. This habit serves me well as a geologist because we, too, often spend our time looking down. But I have to say that this method can be detrimental to our view of the planet. As geologists, we are Earth scientists and not all of the Earth is beneath our feet. Sometimes we need to look up. Defining the boundaries of the Earth can be difficult, especially in defining the upper limit. It's easy to define the base, that would be the center of the Earth, but where's the top? We speak of the planet as being composed of spheres, the inner core, the outer core, the mantle, the asthenosphere, the lithosphere. These are classically listed as the spheres of the Earth, the 7,900 mile diameter oblate spheroid that we call home. But what of the hydrosphere? What of the atmosphere? These are intrinsic parts of the planet. If we use the National Geographic Society's figures, defining the atmosphere as the outer limit stretches the diameter of this blue marble to over 12,000 miles. But this begs the question, is the atmosphere the outer layer of the Earth? What about the sphere that sits above the atmosphere? What about the magnetosphere? This is that region around a planet that is dominated by the planet's magnetic field. Now, all planets have magnetospheres. Every planet in our solar system has one. But Earth has the most powerful one of all of the rocky planets. It is a huge, comet-shaped bubble, and it has played a critical role in our planet's ability to support life. If we take this broader view of the planet, then the full diameter of our Mother Earth increases almost sevenfold to over 80,000 miles. The magnetosphere is important because our Sun, although it is absolutely vital to life on Earth, is also extremely dangerous to life on Earth. The sun is massive. It contains over 330,000 times the mass of Earth. The sun makes up 99.8% of the matter in the solar system. The sun ejects an average of a million tons of plasma and charged particles per second, though that amount can vary greatly, as we shall see. These particles travel outward from the sun at speeds of over 400 kilometers per second. This constant blast of deadly hard solar radiation is known as the solar wind. Now, the amount of radiation varies over time with the cycles and tantrums of the sun, but if you or I were exposed directly to the solar wind, we would die very painfully. It turns out that to understand the magnetosphere, we have to start by looking down again. We have to understand the Earth's core. Now seriously, how often do you think about the Earth's core? I mean, I know I do whenever I use a compass. You know what a compass is, that old-style thing that we used before we had smartphones. It turns out that the magnetosphere is the product of the solid, iron-rich inner core of the planet, spinning along with the rest of the Earth, inside of the liquid outer core. The Earth's core, in addition to being iron-rich, is also rich in other heavy elements, like uranium and thorium. The presence of these radioactive elements makes the core of our planet a giant nuclear reactor, producing huge amounts of heat. The heat produced by the core sets up convection currents in the mantle, which then drives plate tectonics. The aspect of spin, though, spin within an electrically conductive fluid medium, makes the interior of the Earth a dynamo, producing a strong magnetic field. This gives the planet a magnetic north and south pole, just like any other magnet. These poles approximate, but don't exactly match the real poles, which is why our old compasses still work. This also produces a vast magnetic umbrella that protects us from the intensity of the solar wind. This umbrella, this shield, is the magnetosphere, the outermost layer of planet Earth. Now, as I mentioned, All planets have magnetospheres but they vary greatly in intensity Venus which is often referred to as the sister planet of Earth is roughly the same size mass and composition it appears to have an iron rich core like Earth but its magnetosphere is far weaker than Earth's the difference between the two planets can be seen in their rotation rates Venus's day is equal to 243 earth days, a little over two Venusian years. Such a slow rate of rotation isn't strong enough to generate the dynamo effect that produces a strong magnetosphere. Lacking a strong magnetic shield, Venus is relatively defenseless against the solar wind. Mars also has a weak magnetosphere. Mars is significantly smaller than Earth, and a smaller object cools faster than a larger object. Think of taking a cookie out of the oven as opposed to taking a cake out of the same oven. The cookie is cool enough to eat in a couple of minutes, whereas the cake can take a couple of hours. For this reason, Mars's core is cooler and has less of the liquid conductive material. As a result, Mars has a diminished magnetosphere. Because of this, Mars is constantly scoured by the solar wind. The constant onslaught of particles acts as a giant power sander, abrading and diminishing the atmosphere of the planet. This explains how Mars could have once supported relatively plentiful liquid water on its surface, but no longer does. The planet has been steadily losing its atmosphere for eons due to the abrasion of the solar wind. A big part of the origin of the Earth's core as we know it today may be the result of a near catastrophe in the distant past. According to the International Astronomical Union, a planet is defined as meeting three criteria. Number one, it must orbit a star. Number two, it must be large enough that gravity has forced it into a roughly spherical shape. Number three, it must be big enough that its gravity has cleared away any other objects of a similar size near its orbit. During the Hadean period, over 4 billion years ago, or what astronomers refer to as the heavy bombardment period, Earth cleared something large out of its orbit. A body roughly the size of Mars that we have since named Theia collided catastrophically with the Earth. This collision has been dubbed the Great Thwack, and it caused a huge ejection of material from the Earth that later consolidated and produced our moon, Luna. Most of the mass of Theia remained with the Earth. This impact, like a gut punch to the solar plexus, made a general mess of the interior of the Earth for a long time. If you've ever been punched in the stomach, you can identify with the fact that a serious gut punch can take a good long while to recover from. It took billions of years for the interior of the Earth to sort itself out and produce a nucleated solid core. For the nucleated core to form, the Earth needed to lose some of the heat that was the result of the initial formation of the Earth, compounded by the energy imparted by the Great Thwack. Now, heat can only be transmitted by three processes conduction, radiation, or convection. Rocks are not good at conducting heat. If you hold a piece of, say, granite, maybe about the size of a brick, in one hand, and apply a lit blowtorch with the other hand, it may be an hour or more before you start to feel the rock heating up. Try the same with steel or copper, and you can measure that time in seconds. So conduction's not going to get rid of a lot of heat from the core very quickly. Radiation would require the transmittal of electromagnetic radiation through the rocks. I'll leave the experiment of seeing how well light passes through any given rock to the listener to discover on your own. Go ahead, hold a rock up to your eye and see how much light comes through. This only leaves convection as the main process that will move heat out of the Earth's interior, thereby driving plate tectonics. This process is slow. It took billions of years for the core to shed enough heat through plate tectonics to allow the nucleation of a solid core. Undoubtedly, it started out as a minuscule speck of solid material generating a very weak magnetic field. Over time, though, it grew and consolidated into something resembling what we have now. As the core grew, so did the size and intensity of the magnetosphere. Once the core completely consolidated and reached a threshold size, The magnetosphere grew to a size that could shield the Earth from the solar wind, enough for complex life to emerge. In a world where we've become used to magnets, the strength of the Earth's magnetosphere really doesn't seem like much. A simple refrigerator magnet is 200 times as powerful The magnet used in an MRI is 300,000 times as powerful as the Earth's magnetosphere. But small as it is, it's enough. It reached the intensity that it is now at beginning around about 542 million years ago, nearly three and a half billion years after the Great Thwack. The development of this magnetic shield, protecting us from harmful solar radiation, allowed the onset of the so-called Cambrian explosion. Now, maybe explosion isn't the best term for this event, but it's been in use for so long that I kind of think we're stuck with it. Up until that point, lacking a magnetic shield, the highest life forms that could exist on the planet were loosely organized colonies of pond scum. These are the stromatolites. Anything more complex that tried to evolve was doomed to extinction due to overexposure to radiation. But with the advent of a mature magnetosphere, organized life was able to emerge. And once it started, it couldn't stop, and it rapidly dominated the planet. Over the ensuing 542 million years, this process eventually led to the development of a peculiar species of ape-descended creature that is inordinately obsessed with, and often spends a lot of time just staring at, their smartphones. Fortunately for us, these creatures like to listen to podcasts. These hundreds of millions of years of the planet being shielded from the deadly solar wind has allowed some very unique members of that ape-descended species to evolve to the absolute pinnacle of evolution. I am, of course, referring to the geologists. Even with the magnetosphere in place, though, Solar storms can still eject enormous amounts of material. These are known as coronal mass ejections. These can and do challenge and sometimes overwhelm the magnetosphere that defends us. When they do so, these particles interact with molecules in the upper atmosphere, ionizing them and producing beautiful light displays. These are the aurora borealis, the northern lights, or in the southern hemisphere, the aurora australis. In extreme northern areas and during intense solar storms, witnesses report that the aurora also makes sounds. the sounds of the magnetosphere protecting us, as it has for over a half a billion years. In 1989, an enormous solar flare produced a cloud of charged particles that's estimated to have a mass of over a billion tons, carrying the power of over a 1,000 nuclear explosions. This was actually a closely spaced sequence of two coronal mass ejections. The resulting cloud of particles sped towards Earth at millions of miles per hour. When it hit the Earth's atmosphere, it produced spectacular aurora, and a number of satellites were shut down for several hours. It was also strong enough to produce measurable electrical currents within the ground under much of North America. In Quebec, which has shallow soils that do not conduct electricity well, the currents from the ejection found that the electrical transmission lines were easy conduits and they rapidly overwhelmed circuit breakers in the system. This electrical current managed to shut down power to virtually all of Quebec, while also producing over 200 power outages in the United States. Since this occurred during the Cold War, some in blacked out areas believed that a nuclear first strike had occurred. These blasts of particles can interfere with communication Disable satellites and in extreme cases. They can overwhelm electrical grids just like occurred in 1989 in September of 1859 an amateur astronomer named Richard Carrington was observing and recording Significant sunspot activity when he was blinded by a sudden flash of light He described it as a bright white flare this flare lasted for over five minutes What he witnessed was the strongest geomagnetic storm ever recorded, now known as the Carrington Event. This was an enormous coronal mass ejection that crossed the 93 million mile gap to Earth in under eight hours, a journey that most such ejections take several days to make. It is estimated that the coronal mass ejection in the Carrington Event Unleashed the power of over 10 billion one megaton atomic bombs, sending a stream of electrified gas and subatomic particles hurtling directly toward Earth. When it struck our magnetosphere, it produced auroras worldwide that were so bright that people mistook it for sunrise. People as far south as South Carolina arose from their beds in the middle of the night and began making breakfast because they mistook it for the dawn. The sky was such a bright red that many who saw it believed that neighboring locales were on fire. It wrecked havoc with the telegraph system, causing numerous sparks and fires in telegraph offices. Telegraph lines were said to shower sparks onto the ground, burning some passers-by and giving strong electrical shocks to telegraph operators. It is now believed that a previous coronal mass ejection, just a few days prior, may have weakened the magnetosphere, paving the way for this storm and increasing its impact. Ice core data indicate that this was the largest such storm in over 500 years. Imagine living through this event. Imagine that it's 1859. You awake at dawn like usual, but a little more tired than normal, ready to start your day of work as a telegraph operator. You dress and make breakfast, and as you eat, you take out your pocket watch to wind it. Only then do you realize that it is only 2.30 a.m. Puzzled, You rush outside to see what is happening The sky is ablaze with red light But not the light of dawn This light moves and slithers across the sky Making an eerie hissing and crackling sound A flash to your right draws your attention As an arc of electricity jumps from a nearby telegraph line To a man walking underneath Knocking him to the ground You rush to his aid but he shakes his head and stands back up singed, but apparently unharmed. Then you realize that if the telegraph lines are doing this here, what are they doing in the telegraph office? You run to the office and unlock it to find sparks periodically popping out of the telegraph key. One large spark ignites some papers on the table, but you sweep them off and stamp out the flames. When you reach for the telegraph key, electricity arcs out to your hand, shocking you. You hear a sizzling sound and realize that the electricity is overheating the batteries that power the telegraph. Donning leather gloves, you hesitantly disconnect the batteries. No sooner than you do this, but the telegraph receiver starts tapping out a message. How is this possible without the batteries? You take down the message. And carefully tap out an acknowledgement worldwide communications were disrupted by this event for days but sporadic telegraphy was still able to continue using the ambient electricity from the storm now imagine what an event like the Carrington event or the 1989 storm would do to our electronically interconnected world imagine your smartphone is suddenly inoperable as is your computer your television and most of your home appliances and sparks are showering from the electric lines that feed to your house luckily for us most solar storms are smaller than either of these two extreme events but when these storms occur They have a significant impact on radio communication, and we can, again, hear the sound of the earth protecting us. This is the sound of the sun trying to reduce the earth back to the days when its only inhabitants or pond scum. This is the sound of the tiny Earth shouting defiantly at the Goliath that is our sun. No, not this time, not on my watch. This is the sound of the Earth's inner core, the inheritance of the Theia impact, spinning on its axis and producing the magnetic shield that allows us to stay alive. The Earth is not silent. The Earth is constantly speaking to us, whispering to us, sometimes shouting to us, trying to tell her story. The Earth, reminding us that she is a dynamic planet, a unique planet, a living planet. Earth. Reminding us that there is a reason why life evolved and thrives here and not elsewhere in the solar system. The Earth constantly telling us her story. If we would only pause to listen. This episode of the PCPG Podcast, a poorly sorted but well-rounded series, is a production of the Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists. A special thank you to Gia Fiorelli for the introduction. These podcasts are hosted on several platforms and also available on the PCPG website. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking a moment to give us a rating and leave us a comment to let us know what you think. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. PCPG is a nonprofit organization working to advance the practice of geology and the allied sciences and the success of our members through advocacy, education, and networking. Whether you are a corporation, a professional, or a student, please consider becoming a PCPG member today. Just visit our website, pcpg.org, and be sure to check out the resources tab. If you have a question or an idea for a new podcast, feel free to email me at SoilDude at Comcast.net. That's S-O-I-L-D-U-D-E at Comcast.net. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Russ Lasco.